All right, well, we've been going through a sermon series here in chapel called Discover Your Purpose, and we've been looking at the life of Joseph. It's been one that I started way in the beginning of this semester, and today we're going to kind of close things up. But we're really not going to be talking a lot about Joseph. I'm actually going to be sharing some stories from my own personal life and my own personal story, and I'll get to the reason for that in just a second. But if we think about where we've been in the sermon series, as we look at Joseph's life, there's been a couple of things that, that we've witnessed together. Okay? We saw Joseph have dreams. We saw him share that with his family. We saw him get radically misunderstood. And then he was sold into slavery, into Egypt. We saw Joseph be given into Potiphar's house and, and be, uh, stand faithful under temptation. We found him in prison where he somehow had the presence and awareness to bless those around him while going through that situation. And we left off the last time I was here with Joseph interpreting Pharaoh's dream, something that no one in the land of Egypt could do. So Pharaoh finally acknowledges that, wow, Joseph, in him, in this man is the spirit of God. And he decides that he's going to put Joseph in charge of all of Egypt. And so Joseph becomes Pharaoh's right hand. Basically, in the land of Egypt, there is no one who has more authority than Joseph himself. And Joseph does some incredible things once he gets to this place. He, he's, he saves Egypt from famine, right? He witnesses uh, the, the impending doom that is coming upon the land, and he saves and prepares for the future, and he saves the land, the country, everyone from Egypt from famine. He even saves his own family, the ones that he was betrayed by, the ones that he was sold by. He reconciles with them. He forgives them. And he even gives them a place to live in Egypt forever. And, and listen to this. By the end of Joseph's life, okay, by the end of Genesis 50, relatively, or 49, Joseph has mastered himself. He's overcome his past. He's fulfilled his dreams, even to the point of embracing an Egypt that was foreign to him, even to the point of, of, of loving and serving and saving those who sought to enslave him and extending grace to his family, his own blood brothers, who sold him into slavery. Now, when I look at Joseph's life, the question in my mind is, how in the world did he do this, right? How did this guy live such a life? The, the, the kid that we saw that had dreams about ruling the world and ruling over his family, that kid is now ruler in Egypt. And not only has he led in a political or sociological way, but he has now reconciled all of the psychological damage done to him by being sold. He's, he's found forgiveness and reconciliation. Not only has he done that, but he has, he has literally preserved a place for them for generations to come, right? And if you continue, if you go from Genesis into Exodus, you realize that there are hundreds of years in which the Israelites, or the people of Israel, they flourish in this land of Goshen that Joseph sets out for them. It's incredible. And my question is, how did you do this, Joseph? Joe, how did you do this? Well, I wish that the Bible could let us into Joseph's mind, but it doesn't. We don't get some kind of like fortune teller version of Joseph's story. We don't get like a journal. Can you imagine finding Joseph's journal? I think it'd be like the number one self-help book in all of human history. How to overcome your past, how to love your family, how to love your friends who end up selling you out and betraying you, but you still pretend you like them, how to make a difference in the world. I mean, it would be an amazing thing. But the Bible doesn't give us any clear picture about Joseph and how he did these things. All we know is that he did them. He fulfilled them on his journey. A journey that we mentioned earlier is more like a quest and less like one in which you go and come back again. See, Joseph, the moment he was sold into slavery, his life had changed forever. 
the truth this morning is that, like Joseph, all of us are on a journey. Some of you are finishing this semester, and that's a journey. Some of you are finishing your college career. You're getting ready to graduate. And it's the danger, Will Robinson. College is ending. Warning signs. That's, that's appropriate, I think. But some of you are preparing for the end of one journey and the beginning of another. It feels like you've achieved a lot because you've been here and you've, you've been tried and you've struggled. But let me tell you, life after college is crazy hard. I think much harder than it is in college. Now, I don't know how Joseph survived on his journey, but I've lived a little bit. I'm 33 this year. In some ways, that's old. In some people, that's young. But when I'm around college students all the time who remind me how young I am. The other day, for instance, I was talking with a student, Tyler Kim. He's maybe here, maybe not. Tyler's leading into fashion. And I was talking about jeans, you know, because Tyler bought some dark stained jeans. And I thought dark stained jeans are cool. Well, this guy bought a brand new pair of jeans and then he bleached them to make them look lighter. And I was like, why did you do that? You just ruined a perfectly new pair of jeans. The dark stain looks great. And he was like, JD, of course you're old, so you wouldn't understand. So I have lived a little bit of life. I like my dark stained jeans, thank you, not the light ones. Not going to ruin a good pair of pants, but I just bought them. So this morning, right, we're going to kind of wrap up Joseph and say he lived an amazing life. I don't even know what he did. I'm going to share with you some stories of my own and share with you three principles that I wish I knew uh, when I left college many, many years ago. So these are three principles that I wish I knew for life after college, okay? Principle number one. The world doesn't need you to save it. The world needs you to be ready. Okay, what do I mean by this, all right? I feel like when you leave college, there's all of this like sociological pressure, maybe within yourself, maybe within our culture that says like, you are the future, you are our hope. We're gonna send you and you're gonna go do amazing things and you're gonna go change the world and you're gonna be it because this is your moment. And then six months later, you find yourself like entry-level job, doing paperwork for doctors. Totally different picture, okay? Now, let me share with you a story. When I moved, I moved to Boston nine years ago. And when I moved to Boston, uh, I was in seminary. I just started at Gordon-Conwell Theological Seminary. My wife and I had just been married. And um, I got involved with this church called High Rock in Arlington. And they brought me on as a pastoral intern. And I was able to do like a lot of different ministry stuff. And I was like, you know what? Like, I love Boston. Um, but one of the things I started realizing was that this is like a really like, like secular place, okay? Meaning that people are like so done with religion. Coming from Texas, where like mega churches pop out like babies, um, Boston is kind of an enigma. It makes no sense to me how like 30 people in a building is considered successful, okay? Because you have like 3,000 that just came up like last week. And so I was like, you know what? I want to do something radical for the city of Boston. And I remember, I remember, there was an associate pastor, his name was Josh. He came to me and he said, J.D., do you want to come and plant a church in Boston? And I was like, plant a church? Yeah, that sounds amazing. I'll plant a church. And my wife and I were like, sure, church planting. That sounds like it'll be awesome. And I had no idea. Church planting is one of the hardest things I've done, not for the faint of heart. But I remember, I said, what's my role going to be? And he said, you're going to do worship and you're going to do college ministry. And I thought, cool, I love college students. I was just in college. Like, cool, this is great. And so I decided to pray for revival, which I did. And in my prayers, I came up with this master plan to like save each Boston, like each college in the city of Boston, okay? Now, I, I drew a map, a strategic map, 
all right? I was like, this is how we're going to do it. Like, here's, I, I had my college students at that time in the college ministry I did were from BU, Northeastern, MIT, Boston College, some from Harvard. And so, like, I had kind of, like, a central location. And I was like, okay, what we're going to do is I'm going to disciple this many people. And, like, these people are going to disciple these people. And we have now these four things. And now, like, these four colleges are going to become one mega college church movement. And we're going to see, like, like, like the, the colleges birth a church that New England has never seen before. And the kingdom of God is going to come. And it's going to be amazing. And it's going to be awesome. And I was, like, super excited about this. So I went to talk to a mentor of mine. His name was Pastor Eugene. Okay, Eugene Kim. He's still a pastor at Howard Arlington. And if you don't believe me, you can ask him. This is a true story. I went to Eugene, and I was like, Eugene, I've been praying. The Lord gave me a vision, and I need to share this with you. And so I told Eugene everything. Here's my master plan. Here's the hope for the city of Boston. And I'm going to be the one to bring in its salvation. And here's my mega college church, and, and we're going to do it. And I'll never forget, Eugene just looked at me, and he laughed. Like, straight laughed in my face. And I was like... This is not funny. There's nothing funny about this. This is epic. Why are you laughing? And he just kept laughing. And then after a while, he stopped. You know, it's like the awkward, like, I don't know. Like, am I supposed to laugh? So I was kind of laughing, but not laughing. Just weird. And I said, what's the deal? And he said, dude, you are going to fail so hard. You're going to fail so hard. And I was like, what? Like, you're my mentor. Like, you're not supposed to crush my dreams when I come before you and tell you that God gave me a plan. And here's my master plan, this God-given plan for revival. And he said, you know why you're going to fail? And I said, why? And he said, because you're a punk kid, that's why. And I was like, what? Like, what are you talking about? And I'll never forget what he said after. He said, JD, he said, you look at me, you look at Dave, you look at all these people. And there are all the pastors of High Rock Church, you know. High Rock, they're doing amazing things, right? It's my dream to serve there. They've planted like six churches in the last five years in Boston, which is crazy. They're just, they're awesome people. And uh, Eugene said, look, we're all punk kids. We don't do anything in and of ourselves. Like, we, we, don't, we don't bring salvation to this city or to these people. Like, we just follow God wherever he sends us. And it's because God has a plan for us. It's because he loves us and he's gracious to us and works in and through us that anything comes out. It's not because of me or Dave that we're successful. You're a punk kid, just like us. You're going to fail, but that's okay. Now, wisdom should say that I would have been like, Eugene, you're so right. But I was like, forget you, man. I'm going to prove you wrong. And guess what? I failed. Dramatically failed. I think that there's a temptation that says that when you have finally arrived and you're going into this new phase of life, that somehow you need to be the world's salvation. Listen, God can save the world himself. He doesn't need our help. The one thing I've learned once getting into ministry is a lot of time I just need to be the one to get out of the way so that God can do what he wants to do. Now that doesn't mean that he's going to excuse you or not use you. It's called partnership because God wants to use you. He wants you to take your life and your gifts and your passions to develop those capacities to be a good steward of what you've been given. And when you offer them back to God, and when you say, Lord, just, just use them as you will. I'll be faithful wherever you send me. God does incredible things in you and through you. Ecclesiastes 3 says that there's a time for everything. Right? I'm going to read this fast. There's a time for everything and a season for every activity under the sun. A time to be born and a time to die. A time to plant and a time to uproot. A time to kill and a time to heal. A time to tear down and a time to build up. A time to weep and a time to laugh. A time to mourn and a time to dance. A time to scatter stones and a time to gather them. 
A time to embrace and a time to refrain from embracing. All the introverts are really happy about that one. A time to search and a time to give up. A time to keep and a time to throw away. A time to tear and a time to mend. A time to be silent and a time to speak. A time to love and a time to hate. A time for war and a time for peace. Listen, you have time. Time to learn. Time to deepen your capacities. The world doesn't need you to save it. Not right now, at least. God will use you to save it. Yes, I really believe that. But right now, you just need to be ready. So that's principle number one. All right, principle number two is this. You don't learn to be a king on the throne. You learn to be a king while following sheep in the field. Okay, I'm going to read that again. You don't learn to be a king on the throne. You learn to be a king while following sheep in the field. Now, this image is from David's life, found in 2 Samuel. Now, David is anointed king as a teenager. But he finally becomes king when he's like 30 years old. There's a 15-year gap between him like receiving his vision and him actually doing it. And so the question is, well, how did David learn to be king? Like, what did he do to prepare for that? Now, I know that some of you guys watch the show Game of Thrones. Maybe you shouldn't be watching it, but I know you watch it. That is not how you learn to be king, okay? You don't, like, sabotage people and kill them and do crazy stuff. Like, that's not it, okay? There should be nothing—like, when you go into corporate America and you think that your job is Game of Thrones and that your boss is like Joffrey, that is not it, okay? I'm telling you right now, you've heard it. Don't think that way. You learn to be king not when you're in the throne room, but you learn to be king while you're following sheep in the field. One of the stories where we see this very clearly for David is when he's fighting Goliath, okay? David, in 1 Samuel 17, is delivering some goods to his brothers when he sees an epic showdown. The people of God are at war with the Philistines, and, and they do this kind of thing where both sides of the camp are, 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 are like prepared, and, and Goliath is out there saying, send me a champion. Send me one person, right? To fight against me. And Goliath is this giant. You guys have read all that. You know the Bible stories. You've seen VeggieTales. I know you get it. The thing is, David, he's, he sees this. And there's no one coming out. Now, the way that ancient warfare worked is that whoever wins this battle basically ends up fighting for the whole army. So whoever wins this little challenge ends up being the winner of everything. And no one on, on Israel's side is going out. And David is delivering like cheese and fruit to his brothers, literally, okay? He's taking a break from his shepherding duties, and he's visiting his brothers, and he's like, bro, why don't you go? And he's like, I'm not going to go. Like, bro, why don't you go? And David goes to the king, right? How he gets to the king, who knows? But he goes to the king, and he's like, hey, how come no one's going? And he's like, do you see that guy? Like, he's huge. He's going to fight him. And David goes, I'll fight him. I'll go. Little napscat with cheese and grapes, you know? Can you imagine that? And Saul's like, are you crazy, man? Why in the world would I send you, punk kid looking little? Send you out there? But listen to this, okay? This is, this is in the Bible. Listen to what David says to Saul. David said to Saul, your servant has been keeping his father's sheep. And when a lion or a bear came and carried off a sheep from the flock, I went after it and I struck it and I rescued the sheep from its mouth. And when it turned on me, I seized it by its hair. I struck it and I killed it. And your servant has killed both the lion and the bear. And this uncircumcised Philistine will be like one of them because he has defied the armies of the living God. The Lord who rescued me from the paw of the lion and the paw of the bear will rescue me from the hand of this Philistine. David knew exactly what to do in the situation when all of Israel was frozen, when the very king of Israel was frozen. He knew what to do because in that field while he was taking care of sheep, 
He had witnessed something very similar. See, so many of us think that we're going to learn how to, to rule or be a king or live into our destiny when we finally arrive. But that's not the case. The truth is that you learn how to live into that destiny, not when you're in the throne room, but when you're in the field taking care of sheep. Now, what does taking care of sheep look like? Well, it's boring. Just walking around, following the sheep. Some of them are disobedient. You know, they're probably pooping as you're walking, like it's gross. You're just out there by yourself. It's mundane. It seems purposeless. But it's in that place, right, where David learned a few things. This is one example. He learned how to fight and protect. He learned how to care for sheep. You know, I don't know if you guys have ever heard this, but when there's a disobedient sheep, you know the, the story where Jesus says where 99 goes away and one goes, like I'll go and reach it and all of that. That story is very, very familiar to shepherds, right? When there's a disobedient sheep, it was common practice for shepherds in the time. This is what they would do. If there was one sheep that left the fold, they would go and find the sheep and they would bring it back. But if it kept doing that over and over again, the shepherd would break the sheep's legs. Carry it. Carry it. The shepherd would carry the sheep and walk with it with the rest of the fold. To teach the sheep where it belonged, that it had a place of safety. See, David learned that while he was shepherding. He learned how to care for people. He learned how to fight. He knew how to trust God. Many of the Psalms that we have in the Bible were written where? In the throne room? No. You see the imagery when he's out in the fields and the valleys. You see him talk about God's faithfulness as he travels through the valley of the shadow of death. What does he say? The Lord is my shepherd. David knows that because he himself was one. You're going to learn to live into your destiny, not when you finally arrive at your destiny. You're going to learn to live in there at that internship that you think has no purpose and is totally random. Or that meaningless entry-level job that you think has no purpose whatsoever. Or that random place where you're like, this is surely not God's will for me, but somehow I found myself here. Or maybe just a summer at home because all of those job opportunities didn't work and you're still stuck with your parents even though they really want you out. Somewhere along the line, you're going to have to realize that God is trying to teach you something. He's trying to form your character and mold you into the person who can finally be a king or a queen when you arrive in that throne room. But so many of us are, are, are caught with the image and dream of being there that we totally miss what God has for us here. Look, my first job, I worked at family Christian bookstores in the mall. It was so lame. I hated my life, okay? All right? There's nothing cool about that, all right? And then I worked at Outback Steakhouse. I'll never forget this. Like, this, this is the key. I was actually dating my wife at the time, and, and I, I was like, okay, I need to, like, make money to get an engagement ring. So I, I man, I milked that story, and my tips were good, you know? Because the moment you're like, yeah, my wife and I, you know, or fiancé, sorry, at the time, we're, we're engaged right now, and I'm just working here to make up money, and she's in Texas, and I'm here. And they're like, oh, 30%. Here you go, young man. Thank you. Thank you. Right? I worked at that job. I hated that job, man. That job was horrible. It was so, people were so angry. They were so mean. But you know what I learned from working at Outback State House? I, I, you have to be very strategic. You need to be good with, like, the bus boys. You need to have, like, a relationship with the hostesses. You need to be good and with, like, a line chef. Like, you need to know how to offend people but not really offend people. But get, the, like, you need people skills. And as a pastor, I use those skills every day all the time. I worked at Children's Hospital in my last year of seminary, literally, like on the front desk, okay, being a servant for doctors. That was my role. 
I made their paperwork. I scheduled their appointments. I rescheduled their appointments. When the patients were angry because the doctor was running three hours late, the patient would come and yell at me. And I would be like, I'm sorry. I'm trying the best I can. I've talked with the doctor. I can't get you any sooner. The patient was like, this is unacceptable. Make me feel like crap. And then the patient would like walk over to the doctor and the doctor's like, I'm so sorry that I haven't seen you. And the patient's like, oh, it's all good. We were just coloring. So I would go to the doctor and say, the patient was crazy. And he'd be like, no, the patient was fine when he was with me. That was the story of my life for almost two years. But it's funny, though, all the things I learned there. I learned how to work. I learned how to manage. Things I wouldn't have been able to learn just waiting around, playing video games, thinking that my destiny was going to show up. You learn how to live into that destiny, not when you're there, but in all the things that lead up to it. So be aware. Be a present of how God is working in those fields and how he's eventually going to take you there if you're faithful to that. That's the second principle. Principle number three is this. People say the best is yet to come. Sometimes that's true. Most times it's not. All right? People say the best is yet to come. Sometimes that's true. Most times it's not. Now, I know, you're like, J.D., are you serious? Like, you're a dream crusher. Come on, man. I, I was going to put that on my cap when I graduated. The best is yet to come. Sorry. Tell the truth. Sometimes when I read my Bible, okay, I love it. I, I should tell you, I'm like a Bible nerd. So when I worked at the Family Christian Bookstore, I had two jobs. I sold music tracks because I'm a musician, and I, you know, did, F, like, FOL, like, competitions in the denomination I was a part of. So I sold music tracks, but I was also like the Bible salesman. Like if you showed up and you were like, I want a Bible, you walked out with like a Schofield, like Bible, like $50, you know, that's just how it worked. And I just, I was like, you really want that study Bible because you want, you want to know God. That's how you get them, see? They give you their money. <laughs> it's okay, you're going to laugh. That was a joke. Okay, so sometimes when I read the Bible, and I love the Bible, I've told you that, I love it. But then there are times when I reach a certain point and I hate it, okay? I can't deal. Uh, Hebrews 11 is kind of like that, okay? If you read Hebrews 11, it starts with this beautiful verse, faith is a substance of things hoped for, the evidence of things not seen, right? At a moment like this, like we, we say, yes, have faith and believe in God and go out there and venture into the unknown and know that God will be with you. And yes, like faith is the evidence of, so Hebrews 11 starts that way. And then you're like, yes, I'm right there. Amen. Hallelujah. And then it goes through a whole chapter and it talks about Abel and Noah and Abraham and Isaac and Joseph and Moses and Gideon and David. And even the author gets tired. So he's like, should I write about all those other people? Cause like my hand is tired and they're all in the old Testament. They were faithful. They were awesome. They lived out this awesome journey of faith. And by then, I'm like, yes, these people did live their faith. I remember hearing about Moses and the miracles and Gideon. And I remember all this stuff. But then you get to verse 39. I hate this. These were all commended for their faith, the writer writes. Yet none of them received what had been promised. What? You're telling me that God promised them something. And that they're commended, they're heroes of faith, but none of them received what they were promised. How is that possible? Part of the reason I get so angry when I get to this passage, it, it reminds me of a particular point in my life. Shortly after college, uh, actually no, kind of in my last year. I had some extra years, you know what I'm saying? You guys know. 
There was a point in my college career where I was part of a music group. Some of you guys have heard this, some of you have not. And while I was in this music group, we had the opportunity to tour the U.S., and we did, like, two tours, but we also toured Korea. And I don't even know how it happened, but, like, we became kind of a big deal in Korea. We had, like, a radio hit single, and then there were, like, fan clubs, and then there were, like, girls vying for our attention. And then we were on, like, Christian radio and Christian TV, and then we were in front of, like, thousands of people and, and, and at some of the largest churches in the world in front of, like, 30,000. I mean, just, like, crazy kind of stuff. And this, this, it was like, it was, I was like 19, 20, whatever, right? And it was amazing, okay? This group, was, I was like, wow, this is the coolest thing ever. I'm hanging out with like some of the world's best musicians, and they think that I'm like the man. This is awesome. Well, uh, the group continued to get big, and they wanted to kind of diversify. There were six of us who were like main singers, and they wanted to diversify. Now, this is a true story, okay? Just need to say that before I tell you what I'm going to tell you. What they wanted me to do is they wanted me to drop out of college. I was at the University of Texas at the time. They wanted me to drop out of college full time. They wanted me to go to Korea because they wanted to start a Korean boy band around me. <laughs> now, I know that's hard to imagine, okay? I know it's hard to imagine, but mind you now, this was when JD was much younger. At that time, I was doing like hip-hop choreography for some student organizations, I did some break dancing. I had like, you know, if you watch old K-pop videos, like, you know, you have the long hair that goes to here, but it goes back like this. I had like red streaks in my hair. Like, it was a thing, okay? And, you know, they, were, they, they, they thought, oh, JD's a good choice. We had to do all these music videos and interviews. And, you know, because I was half Korean, half Filipino, I'm half Filipino for those of you that didn't know, like, I, I looked interesting to Korean people, and they were like, so what we've done, J.D., this is what happens. When you want to become a K-pop band, they send you to, like, a, a remote location somewhere in the mountains for, like, 10 months. And you just dance and sing and learn how to be a star, like, every single day at any, like, ramen noodles for, like, 10 months. That's what you do. Yeah, it's not appealing at all, okay? And they were like... They were like, we have it all set up. We've got a producer who wants to work with you. We've got two guys that we've already confirmed. You know, they're not, they're not, they're not too tall because you're kind of short, but we're going to make it work. And we've got like a couple other people that we're bringing on. And they wanted to like do this thing. And they wanted it, it to be like, like a, a Korean boy band, but like a, a Christian version or someone like, you know, I believe in Jesus kind of thing. Anyways, I, I prayed about this. I seriously considered it. I went home to my family and I told my mom and dad, hey, this is what I want to do. This is what I want to do, right? This is my best is yet to come moment. Like, I'm going to be a star. Yes. I was called to ministry at 11. And this is it. You know? You know? <laughs> Stuff like that. Let's go, right? I was ready. And I, my dad, he got really serious. We, we would have these family meetings. Uh, it was like, there was like nine of us. because My parents adopted five kids. And we had these family meetings. And my dad was like, okay, son, this is the deal. If you choose to go with this decision, okay, you're like dead to us. You're dead to us. All right? Like, like literally you don't exist. You can show up on our door and like we're, we're not going to acknowledge your existence. And all of my siblings are crying and they're like freaking out. And I'm like, well, would that be that bad? You know, <laughs> I'm really considering the options. Um, and so I told my parents, this is how horribly arrogant I was. I was like, Okay, let me get back to you. Let me think about it. And so at that time, we had this revival service at our church. And uh, I remember going to the revival service. And one of my favorite evangelists was coming through. His name was Glenn Binion. I grew up in a, uh, a Wesleyan Pentecostal church. And so it was, 
I've, we've done everything. Literally, Jericho marches all the time, swinging from chandeliers, beautiful stuff like that. And uh, we had one of these revival moments, okay? And I was like in the altars praying, and God just like wrecked me. And God was like, J.D., I called you. I called you when you were 11. I called you to ministry. I said that I want to call you to preach. And I was like, yeah, okay, I remember. And God was like, you need to stay in school. You need to graduate. You need to finish. And so I called this group, and I said, hey, I prayed about it. God wants me to go to seminary. I really want to be a pop star, but I'm going to go follow Jesus, go to seminary. Hung up the phone. They were like, yeah, blessings on you. What I didn't anticipate this group completely, like, excommunicated me. I was, like, dead to them. Now, I should say, I was so close with this group of people. I was willing to run away from home. I tried a couple of times, actually, to be with them. I thought they were my brothers and sisters. And in my pursuit of Jesus, boom, they were like, you're dead. I had no friends. I had nobody, no dreams. I wasn't a pop star, just dancing by myself in my room that does nothing for you. All right? And I, and I got, like, madly depressed. I didn't know it at the time. I didn't know it at the time. All right? But I was madly depressed. Now, I know that there's many of you who, who struggle with depression, and there's, there's nothing wrong with that. That's very human. Right? We have the Brickley Center here at Eastern Nazarene College. It's amazing. Brad Thorne and the work that he does. The fact that you guys can get counseling services for free while you're here, unbelievable. Right? Do it. Therapy was one of the best things I've ever done in my life. And I think it makes total sense if you're struggling and going through that to go and get some help. But at that time in my life, I was madly depressed. I had, I had no friends, no community. My family, they didn't know. I almost rejected them. So they were kind of like, we love you, but we don't know what to do with you right now. It was a really, really dark place. And uh, things kind of spiraled for a few months. And then I was, I was like addicted into destructive behaviors and doing crazy sinful stuff. And it was, not, it was not good. Very, very bad. And I remember one day I went out into a field. And I, and I screamed at God in this field in Texas by myself, Okay. And I was like, you told me you had a plan for my life. You told me that things were going to be good, that things were going to be better. And like, why, why does it feel this way? Why does it feel like I have nothing? Why does it feel like I have no one? And of course, when you do that kind of dramatic stuff, God doesn't answer. Well, at least he didn't at that time. Later, though, when I went home, he spoke to me in my room. And God asked me this question. Man, I'll never forget this. He said, J.D., I promised you all this stuff. I promised you that I would use you. I promised you that I'd have a plan for your life, that you'd preach, that you'd do this stuff. But if I never gave you any of that, would I be enough for you? And I'm going to be honest with you guys. My answer was no. It wasn't even like a, it wasn't even like a no. It was like a hell no. No, you're not enough for me. God, are you serious? No. You're not enough for me. I need that. Oh, I was so wrong, so mistaken. See, the truth that I've learned to live into, that I've experienced in my life is, yeah, people say the best is yet to come, and sometimes that's true, but most times it's not. And that's okay, because God doesn't promise that life is going to be easy. He doesn't say that you're going to have a clear path. He doesn't say that everything's going to be figured out. What he says is that he's going to be with you. He gives you his very presence. He gives you himself. Now, I know that at this point in your life, you're like, okay, God is with me, J.D., I've heard that. Okay, I get you, chapel. Okay, we're, we're almost over. I know you're thinking that. But listen, some of you are going to go from this place. You might get a disease. 
They may say that you have six months to live. Or maybe you get married and you decide to, to, to you meet the love of your life and that person is amazing and then you get pregnant. And that's an incredible, amazing thing. And guess what? For no reason after three months, that baby is gone. Or maybe like you're working and then all of a sudden they come to you. You've done the very best you can and they say, we're really, really sorry, but we don't need you here at this company anymore. For some of you, you're going to watch families, your families, fall apart. I watch my fall, fall apart for no reason. My dad, you know, who I talk about a lot. I've heard this in chapel sometimes. He's married to my mom for 20 years. Had this affair. He left. My family destroyed. I don't, some of my siblings, we can't even talk to each other anymore. Still to this day. Because it hurts to think about what we lost. Right now, you may not be feeling that truth that God is with you, that it's good news, that it's a healing balm. But in those moments in your life, I want you to remember that a short, almost Korean pop star, Asian man, told you, God doesn't promise it's going to be easy. He promises you himself. And at the end of the day, sometimes having that and knowing it and showing up is enough. And that's okay. And so as we come to the conclusion of this chapel, wherever you are, whether you're graduating or finishing this semester or just visiting Eastern Nazarene College because it's red carpet day, wherever you are, travel your journey with confidence. Know that you are never alone. Know that God is with you and teaching you and molding you. And all of those opportunities, whether you think they're important or not, he's going to use them to shape your character and help you to live into who you've been called to be. So be ready and be present. Embrace every opportunity because trust me, God doesn't waste any moment. Learn how to king it or queen it in those fields that he sends you to. You never know where God's going to direct your life. And lastly, remember that God never promised it would be easy, but he promised that he'd be with you. You can trust in that whenever you go. Wherever we are, may we be a people who live our stories with confidence and grace and poise. And like Joseph, may we at the end of our lives be able to say that we mastered it. That we overcame our past, that we overcame our failings, and that we were good stewards of what we've been given. Amen? Amen. Let me pray for you. Father in heaven, I thank you for this day and for this chapel that we've had to gather. I thank you, dear God, for who you are and for the ways that you use us. God, I thank you for your love for each person here in this room. God, whether they know you or not, whether they've accepted you or not, Lord, the fact that you love them so incredibly much is not, it's not affected or does not change. And Lord, as we go on from this place into our own journeys now, will you guide us and give us strength, give us courage. God, help us to discover ourselves and to live into the fullness of all that you have for us. We love you and we praise you. In Jesus' name we pray. And all God's people said, amen. Go in peace. You're dismissed.